Welcome to the University of New South Wales, Canberra, Australian Naval History podcast series, produced in partnership with the Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, Navy Sea Power Centre and the Submarine Institute. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoy this podcast in return for others in the series. I'm Professor Tom Frame, a former Naval Officer and now Director of the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society at the Defence Force Academy. The centre hosts the very active Naval Studies Group at UNSW Canberra. So please visit our website. To find us, simply Google Naval Studies Group and UNSW Canberra. Ours will be the first website in the search results. In this podcast, we explore the fascinating story of the formation of the Royal Australian Naval College and its contribution to the Navy and to the nation. So when did the story begin? Well, in 1913, the first naval college in the British Empire to be established beyond the shores of the United Kingdom was opened with considerable fanfare, albeit in temporary quarters at Osborne House in Geelong. Two years later, a magnificent purpose-built naval college was opened on the shores of Jarvis Bay to train the young officers of the Royal Australian Navy. To help us gain a sense of the college's evolution, we're joined by Vice Admiral Peter Jones, author of Australia's Argonauts, the remarkable story of the first class to enter the Royal Australian Naval College. We're also joined by Commander Greg Swindon, author of First In, Last Out, The Navy at Gallipoli, and HMAS Melbourne, The Forgotten Cruiser. And finally, Lieutenant Commander David Jones, curator of the Royal Australian Naval College Heritage Centre. Gentlemen, thanks for making the time to speak to us to talk about this fascinating story in which in many ways we all have a personal stake in in some way. Greg Swindon, can I first come to you? Why was a decision made to build a naval college in Australia? Why not simply send these young officers from Australia to Britain uh, where they might have been trained there? Why decide in 1913 we needed our own naval college? Well much of that goes back to Vice Admiral Creswell who became the, uh, the first chief of our navy. He was looking at creating an Australian navy virtually from nothing uh, so the ships were being built in the UK, sailors were being recruited, uh, some of them uh, from the Royal Navy and some of them uh, through HMAS Tingaira, the boys training ship in Sydney. But Creswell was adamant that the officers of the Australian Navy needed to be Australians and needed to be trained in Australia. And certainly he was uh, supported by Alfred Deakin, who was the Prime Minister during that period, who saw also that you know, Australia the Australian Navy should be manned by Australians and officered by Australians. So rather than send them to the UK and produce something that was very British, Creswell made sure that the, we produced something that was very Australian. Would you say there was almost a sense of nationalism in wanting to build our own college? Yeah, certainly it was. You know, with the creation of the Navy, uh, obviously in 1911, given the, the title Royal Australian Navy, uh, building ships in the UK but bringing them out to Australia, recruiting as many Australians as possible, it was a very nationalistic activity you know we're creating our own navy we're now going to be responsible for our own defense we'll no longer be tied to britain for our naval defense and do you think too there was an idea we need an australian tradition of naval service and what better place to start than young officers yes i, I don't disagree with that at all certainly let's get these boys in at 13 inculcate them in the in the ways of the navy and you know, eventually it did take some uh, decades but we'll produce our own admirals and one day they will be uh, the Chief of Navy and they'll be Australians. And David Jones, we have a very large coastline. There were lots of places they could have put the Naval College. 
what were they thinking when they thought first about an interim site and then about a permanent site? Were there some things in their mind they thought, well, we can't go here or we should go there? Help us understand the choice of sites. Well, <coughs> the uh, first thing I did was ask naval members and key positions to make recommendations. And um, there was a wide variety of opinions. I think overall there were 11 different sites uh, postulated as being uh, the, the, the site. Uh, it narrowed down to a few. Uh, one was Pitwater uh, in Sydney, and uh, another one was um, in Port Hacking, Boroughnear Point. Um, Jarvis Bay was on the table as a possible place to put the college, but um, in those days um, there were focus on uh, sail training and boat work. It uh, um, meant that uh, they wanted uh, waters that were fairly calm. And Jarvis Bay was seen to be too uh, uh, exposed, even though it was a good harbour, too exposed for that small boat work. And so um, uh, some were suggesting St George's Basin, which is in a, a similar area, would be a suitable place. Um, the Navy's opinion, however, uh, wasn't Jarvis Bay. Um, and eventually it became a political decision, mainly because um, Canberra was in its formation and the politicians uh, had decided to put Duntroon uh, in Canberra, at the national capital, rather than in a state capital. And they decided that the Navy should go to the national port, or which was postulated to become the national port. And of course the nearest body of water, the nearest port to Canberra, uh, is and was Jarvis Bay. And so uh, the uh, politicians said, well we can't put it anywhere else. Uh, it has to be at the national port. Was that because they'd be accused of favouritism, like we can't put it in New South Wales, we can't put it in Victoria, because we'd had this great debate about where the national capital would be anyway, in New yes. South Wales, but <coughs> not near it 100 miles to Sydney. So it was, a, it was a juggling exercise of political expectation. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but I think it was also that national, uh, you mentioned that national pride, um, and that was very evident in the... Um, uh, not only in the selection of the site, but also in the, um, the buildings. Um, I, I think, I'm not sure whether the state competition was, thing was there, but um, certainly it was that nationalistic uh, view that uh, it, it had to be tied to the nation rather than to a state. And uh, we see that in the building, just to, I'm probably jumping ahead, but um, the uh, money that was raised uh, from the public towards uh, defence uh, just by uh, direct giving and it was eventually given to the college uh, to help build the college. So that nationalism was ingrained in society. And Peter Jones, what things did they have in mind when they were choosing who would be the first Australian naval cadets? Were they to be modelled, if you like, on their British counterparts? Uh, did we do things differently? Were we looking for a particular kind of person? Private school boys from good backgrounds? What things did they have in mind in choosing that first class? So there's quite a lot of thought about what the training would be comprised of and, um, and obviously the Royal Navy was the model. Uh, Admiral Creswell had gone to UK, he'd spoken to uh, Professor Ewing, who was the Director of Naval Education, um, and talked to the Admiralty about training. And uh, it, that was a big issue in itself because navies were changing, they're becoming much more technologically advanced, and the Royal Navy had just in recent years gone through quite a change in the way they trained their officers to essentially a four-year training regime to prepare young cadets, as they, as they called them in the Royal Navy, before they went to sea as midshipmen. Um, Creswell was uh, realised that that was probably the best 
uh, training model and it was largely adopted but one of the key differences was that in the Royal Navy that as a parent of a cadet joining the Naval College you had to pay for tuition and you had to pay for uh, uniforms so in those days that could be over a thousand pound. What that translated to was that uh, the officer corps of the Royal Navy was just drawn from the well-to-do, the well-to-do, the middle uh, middle class, and the upper class. And to be honest, most of the upper class uh, boys went to the army, um, and uh, so that was not attractive to the navy in Australia. For the uh, sim- one of the reasons was that we were a much smaller society, and um, and indeed. Admiral Jackie Fisher in the Royal Navy, he had indeed wanted to change that system because he said that uh, the Royal Navy ran the risk of drawing their Nelsons from to, from just one social strata. So he was aware that was a, a real problem in the Royal Navy, but that was something considered too radical for such a, a, a class, uh, uh, um, I guess, stratified society. Yeah. 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 So. Um, in, in Australia, from the Navy side, they very much wanted to have applicants come from the wide range of society. From the political uh, uh, dimension, both Alfred Deakin and his successor, Andrew Fisher, who being a Labor Prime Minister, uh, were very keen that uh, the boys should be drawn from all society. So what they did was that the, uh, the government said that they would pay for tuition and education. And that was made uh, quite a, uh, a thing at the time. It's revolutionary almost, isn't it? It, it was. It was the, uh, the first naval uh, college that would have this, um, this feature. And when the, the college was opened at, at the initial um, uh, college at uh, the interim college at Geelong, uh, Andrew Fisher made that point, as did the Governor General, that this was the, the first college where just aptitude and physical fitness were the, the, the basis upon which uh, the boys were drawn. And being a, a, a small society as it was at that time, when applicants were uh, went through the, the education uh, examination uh, and the aptitude tests, they were all just given a number. Their name was not um, attributed until the very end when they went, when the, the successful list of candidates went before the Naval Board and in and the, a number was uh, was allocated, or the, the name was associated with a number. And that was because they didn't want any perceived favouritism to be because people knew a particular family. Um, and, uh, and I think the other piece was that the first uh, commanding officer of the Naval College, uh, Captain Bertram Chambers from the Royal Navy, he said that, uh, give me six months and you would not be able to tell whether uh, a lad had uh, had any social advantage. And so he was uh, very sure that with um, the, the, the way that their training would be, that uh, you could ensure that uh, uh, people would be able to perform based on their abilities. It sounds almost radically progressive, and you don't think of the Navy as radically progressive, but that's what it sounds like as I hear you speak. It was, and it was also recognised at the time. So Charles Bean, who was, uh, I guess, famous as the chronicler of the Anzacs, he made the point that this model that the Navy was embarking upon was like something out of Plato's Republic. <laughs> that revolutionary. That, that revolutionary, and he opined that we should see how this experiment works, uh, works yeah. and maybe we could apply it elsewhere in society.
Now, I have to ask this as a final question on talking about this topic. Why 13 years old? Because I imagine many people watching this will think they're just children. Now, later on, 50, 60 years later, you and I joined and we were 15 and 16 and people now think that was young. But 13 years old, taking them away from their mothers, was there concern about that? So I think there was two things. One is that was the model that the Royal Navy used. Um, and it also allowed for four years and then you were um, you know, 17, then going to sea, which sort of aligned with where Duntroon was, where they do, they, they joined at 17. And, and that sort of fitted that model. But the other thing that they're very conscious of is they had to try and get the, the boys young uh, so that they had a competitive advantage based on where else they could go in society. And also conscious that naval pay for officers wasn't, uh, you know, uh, very flush and so if you can get them young that's good because you couldn't compete in terms of salary later. Was the Navy competing with the Army for the best boys? That is a good question. Um, I think um, it, uh, at the end of the day it really based on I think the boys aptitudes. Yeah, well, did he want to be in the Navy, did yeah, he want to be in the Army? Yeah, are you interested in being at sea and so on. But that, uh, it, it didn't mean though, when you looked at who joined, that uh, you only got um, boys from coastal regions, far from it. You had people from all around Australia, um, you know, country uh, towns to, to coastal uh, towns and cities. So, so I think it, it really depended on were you interested in being at sea. Now, Greg Swindon, they've been recruited what was in the curriculum? What things did they do across these four years? And it's on the eve of the war, and a war starts, the Great War starts when the first class uh, are at the Naval College. How did the curriculum change? Was it an eye to the war that was being fought or a career that might span decades that they were preparing them for? It was more a career that would be spanning decades, and the curriculum followed very much uh, the Royal Navy curriculum and also some of the greater public schools in Australia and the UK. So there were the standard subjects, you know, English, mathematics, uh, history, although it was very, the history taught was very British focused, a uh, small amount of Australian history, very British focused. Uh, geography, uh, physics was very uh, uh, put forward as a new topic for them to, to study because a lot of these boys would go on to become seamen officers where, you know, physics and relative velocity and those sorts of things would need it to be known. Uh, seamanship, both uh, physical, oh, sorry, the, the theoretical and the practical uh, was required. Uh, engineering, both workshop and the theory uh, was a strong focus because the boys who were joining the, the Naval College weren't just going to become seamen officers, they were looking for the future engineering officers. And some paymasters too? No paymasters. No paymasters. Uh, so no paymasters or instructor officers, they were recruited through different uh, formats. So the boys who were joining the Naval College were either going to be seamen officers or engineering officers. So it was very much a, a uh, uh, let's train them so that they can uh, be future officers, you know, looking at the, th the theory and the practical applications that they're going to put forward. But also these need to be educated men as well. So they were learning French and they were learning German as well. French obviously because uh, France was a major ally of Britain and Germany for the... Who was an adversary. Who was the potential adversary uh, and, and who in fact did become the adversary. And did the war change much of either the routines or the content of the curriculum? No, uh, they continued f much of that curriculum throughout the war. Uh, things did change around the edges. Uh, certainly 
after World War uh, I, um, there was more of a focus on should we be studying Japanese as opposed to German, but that was across the entire Navy, not mm. just at the Naval College. Of course. And look, what time did they get up in the morning? Did they rise in the dark and work to the dark? Did they work them hard or was it a, you know, a gentlemanly existence? It was, well, for those of us who uh, remember the Naval College in our days, where we were getting up at six o'clock in the morning for you know, physical training in the dark, they actually had a fairly gentlemanly uh, sort of activity. So they'd be getting up at seven o'clock in the morning you right. know, and you know, making their beds and brushing, you know, getting ready for the day. Breakfast was at eight, uh, followed by you know, studies commencing at nine. Uh, they went through till about 11 o'clock when there was a, a small stand easy or a recess where they were allowed to have a, a glass of milk and a and a, and, and a, a biscuit and a bread roll or a biscuit <laughs> uh, and then they went back to back to study and then uh, lunch around about uh, quarter past one uh, for an hour and then back to, to study uh, depending on what time of the year it was uh, that would be interspersed with uh, sporting activities so it wasn't just all you know lectures in the classroom or you know down in the workshop learning how to use a lathe they were you know very heavily involved in, in sporting activities uh, rugby was very popular so was cricket and rugby was popular despite the fact that most of the boys came from non-rugby playing states there was no Aussie rules played at, uh, at the college no Aussie rules and no Aussie rules when did those, that start I think that was in the 50s and 60s ah so just you know just a really more than a generation later yeah so uh, and obviously a lot of seamanship stuff so so, you know, out sailing in boats, uh, either down at Corio Bay in the early days or at Jarvis Bay. Uh, uh, drill, you know, learning how to march, uh, you know, learning how to carry a rifle, uh, those sorts of things. And presumably fleet visits as well. And I, 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 I know certainly when I was at the Naval College, it's a great thing to, you know, there's a ship in the bay, we might have a day at sea. Did that kind of thing happen yeah, that period that, too? Yeah, it did. The, the, the fleet did come into the bay on a regular regular occasion. Uh, the torpedo boat destroyers, and then obviously uh, later down the track with the uh, the, um, the battle cruiser Australia. So whenever the, the fleet came into the bay, the boys would be taken out and shown around the ships. Generally, you know, just a day visit, uh, not not overnight. Not overnight. Now, David Jones, um, the site of the Naval College is 70 miles from Sydney. It's 20 miles from the nearest town of Nowra. It's not exactly accessible. The road wasn't terrific, I would imagine, back in the second decade of the 20th century. What were the problems that they had, the practical problems, of actually building this magnificent facility at Jarvis Bay at that time? Well, the, uh, <coughs> the challenges were very, very great, and, uh, and it was very expensive. Uh, in that first build, they built 58 buildings uh, straight off. Um, so they were building the whole college facility. There was no staged introduction, although they did build accommodation buildings first um, so that um, they could move in there. And in fact, when they moved in, it wasn't, was nowhere near complete in 1915, but the basic facilities were there. Um, it, it, uh, trying to get a picture now of how remote it was is difficult because um, back in, in those days, uh, the major uh, transport uh, uh, method was uh, coastal shipping. And so down the coast you have all these harbours like Kiama and Jeringong Boat Harbour and uh, the bay and then Ulladulla and down the coast. And uh, coastal shipping was the way to get stuff around. Um, these days, the, you know, the Hume Highway has got trucks uh, bumper to bumper. Um, we forget that the Hume Highway was still dirt in the 1950s, still dirt, it wasn't even paved. So back in uh, 1911, there was no road infrastructure. 
there was a railway that came to Bombardier. In fact, the state government promised uh, that they would extend it to the college. And there was also talk about um, the railway coming from Canberra and joining up and a station being put on the map um, at Creswell itself and extended down to probably uh, uh, Bristol Point. But um, that, that never happened either. We're still waiting for the extension over the Shoalhaven River. So all of those building supplies or the vast majority came by sea yes. from Sydney, presumably? Well, it came by sea, but uh, a vast majority of the building materials were accessed locally. So um, there were quarries uh, to build the breakwater and there were sawmills, uh, like multiple sawmills. One sawmill was actually on the quarter deck itself, right in the middle of the college. And uh, they connected the sawmills uh, either by light rail, uh, where they uh, towed little carts around railway tracks around the college uh, to disperse the building materials, um, and also by bullock teams. So bullock teams were, were uh, used widely in the construction of the college. Um, as were horses, uh, horses uh, uh, towing uh, carts on railway tracks. In fact, the early breakwater building was uh, from the quarry was horse-drawn carts. And uh, Eldridge, in his book, talks about the horses jumping out of the way uh, uh, at the end of the track so that the um, carriage could go and tip its load onto the breakwater. Uh, so there were two quarries there. There were numerous sawmills, probably about seven or eight sawmills. Um, uh, uh, cutting up the um, local hardwood, which is the main uh, material the buildings are built of, uh, stucco concrete and, um, and the uh, hardwood uh, weatherboards. And um, they had a, uh, didn't have any accommodation there for the workers, so the workers actually built uh, a little village. There were 350 workers uh, working there at one, one stage. They had a hairdresser, they had a cinema, they had, um, they had their own social program, they had a school, a temporary school, uh, for the children, so people brought their families down there because um, they were there for the duration. And the buildings have stood the test of time, they were yes. well made? It's something, you know, in that era um, people had a sense of history and they had a sense of design and uh, that is borne out by the tremendous buildings we've got down there. They're stylish and they're, they're coordinated, they're laid out well and they've stood the test of time. Now. Saying, in saying that, very expensive to maintain them <laughs> these days. And of course the expense led to uh, problems later on. But um, the buildings are wonderful. It's, um, it's a tremendous place. And when you walk in that place or view it from a distance, you get that sense of um, a presence of, of the Navy on the edge of the bay. And, and, I, and I need to ask, on time and on budget? <laughs> um, I'm not sure, but um, certainly uh, they were still building uh, after the, the Navy had moved in for a couple of years. Um, so I don't well, know I think it was that's on half time. of the, It seems to be half of the. But, but yeah. was there a scandal in, in the Parliament, people saying this college was to cost this much and it actually cost that much? It was within tolerance, the cost? Or was it just the case of we don't care what it costs, just build it well? I don't know. Perhaps, perhaps somebody else would know that more than I would. I'm not sure about the budget. Uh, of it. I, I must say I've never encountered in reading about the place that this was ever a great issue. The timing was, yes. but not so much the cost. Yes, yeah, so um, you're right, there, there was no real discussion about cost um, and I think it was, uh, it was acceptance that there was a bit over budget but that was it. Um, the main thing was when do you move in and, uh, and so it was decided by um, uh, the um, Duncan Grant who was the acting 
commanding officer and effectively the second commanding officer of the, uh, the college when they were still at uh, Geelong, they really had to move because, uh, uh, and I think in part that was to try and ensure that it didn't just drag on. They were planning to move in in 1914, but that was always going to be a problem because that would mm. have meant a 12-month build. And there was definitely more than a 12-month build there, um, especially seeing that they had to source all the materials. The other thing about the college there was that uh, every facility, like it wasn't connected to the power grid, it wasn't connected to a transport hub, um, it wasn't, didn't have a sewerage uh, system, they had to build their own sewerage system. Uh, every single service uh, they had to provide. So they built a power station on the waterfront, coal-fired power station, which originally was by bags of coal uh, coming from a, a, a ship at the end of the wharf, bagging the coal into the, uh, into the generator. And that, uh, that uh, generator had a big chimney next to it, a massive chimney, um, built of bricks. And uh, it was called Monk's Folly. Monk was the engineer and it was called Monk's Folly. And, um, and it was uh, run by sailors. So uh, all the facilities there were run by sailors. There was, there was a bit of public works um, involvement, but um, the generator was uh, run by, uh, by Navy. And um, so every single service there was, uh, was they had to provide mm. for themselves. And, and in the early days, entertainment as well. And uh, uh, you know, all the, um, all the social structure was, uh, was integral because it was so far away from Nara. Yeah, they were certainly resourceful. Now, Peter, the staff, where did they come from? Who were they? And what were they like? All right, so in terms of, uh, th there were two groups really, the, the naval staff and the academic staff. Um, and they were a mix of Royal Navy, Australian Navy and Australian civilians. Um, the first captain, Bertram Chambers, who I mentioned before, he was um, uh, a, a very well reported captain. He'd just come as captain of a, a battleship um, in the uh, Channel Fleet, uh, in fact, the flagship. Um, in fact, his ship had just run aground and he'd, he'd just survived court martial. Uh, Bertrand Chambers was a really good choice though, because uh, as the first captain, he uh, was able to identify a, a good bunch of officers to come with him. He encouraged some to transfer across to the Australian Navy, um, but others came out on loan. Um, he was a good choice for a, one particular reason was he had a very difficult time when he went through the British Naval College. Um, as a 13 year old, he was beaten quite a lot, as were the college in those days, in the late 19th century. Was physically called, beaten. Yeah, physically beaten. It was, um, so the Naval College in Royal Navy in the late 19th century and, and really in the early 20th century was quite brutal. Um, the discipline was typically administered by uh, senior cadets. Um, and he was very, um, uh, really uh, driven to make sure that that never happened at his Naval College. So he was uh, an important person in terms of developing a, quite a positive culture in the new Naval College. So he's keen, he wanted to come, he had a vision, yeah. and he knew what he didn't like. He knew what he didn't like, and also he was one of life's triers. He says in his uh, memoirs that um, he's an example of if someone just tries really hard, they can have a moderate success. I mean, he ended up retiring as a vice admiral. Um, but so he, uh, was empathetic to young kids who were just still, as you've said, really quite young, still developing. And so he was uh, 
um, tolerant of the f and, and encouraging to young people as they tried to just mature. Um, the other really important person was Duncan Grant, who was his uh, executive uh, officer. Um, second he, in command. Second in command. And uh, Duncan Grant, he had um, uh, been at both of the British Naval Colleges as, di as a divisional officer. He, by specialisation, he was a physical training instructor. Um, he did that because he uh, was hard of hearing. And in fact, by the time he came to Australia, he was pretty much deaf. Um, but Duncan Grant was a terrific youth leader, as John Collins referred uh, him to in his oral history. John Collins, a member of the first class. First class who became the first uh, college graduate to become chief of the, the Navy. And, but Duncan Grant was a terrific um, second in command and acted as commanding officer while uh, when Bertram Chambers went back to the UK to command a cruiser during World War I and there was an interlude between when the next captain, Captain Morgan, arrived. Um, so they were an important team. Um, they also had quite a talented academic team. They had um, uh, Reverend Hall, who was a British uh, chaplain and also instructor. He was famous because he developed the, the nautical slide rule, um, which is still form still used at sea today. Um, and and he really pushed religion and the Church of England as the as the natural uh, religion of the of the navy, if you like. And so he he made quite an impression on young people. But we had Australians there, like Lieutenant um, Commander Moyes, who who had been with Mawson in the Antarctic. So you had quite a talented group. The first director of studies was um, a, a, a Mr. Frederick Brown. Uh, Frederick Brown was the first principal of Perth Modern School. Um, and you had a former principal of Rockhampton Grammar School in term Dr. Uh, Wheatley. So you had a very talented group. Um, and and they stayed. And they stayed, and some of them stayed for years and years and years, um, and, and many stayed until the, the college moved, um, uh, which uh, we'll get to, no doubt. But um, so you had this group and you had people like Eldridge, who, who um, uh, Dave referred to, who wrote the first history of the college. Um, very influential group, but there was this feature of this continuity, particularly with the academic staff, that they would stay you know, for you know, a generation and, and students always knew these people and they became real identities. And Greg Swindon, did that mean, because such care was put into their training, that their retention rates were higher, fewer boys were leaving? Uh, did it play out like that? Or did many of them find, because they were only 13 when they joined, that by 17, I don't think I want to do this? And how did that play out? Well, 28 boys were in the, in the first intake in 1913 and 23 of them graduated in 1916. So losing five boys over a four year period was, you know, uh, quite low. Unfortunately, one of them, Otto Albert, died, so uh, I'm sure he wasn't planning that at the stage. <laughs> but when they moved on uh, into the Grand Fleet uh, in 1917, you know, the war was on, there was no choice, uh, they, they, they had to stay. But certainly following the war uh, uh, in the early 20s, there was uh, a, re a reduction in the size of the Navy, and some, and some of those boys uh, did uh, decide to leave and move on into into other uh, forms of employment. Were their parents generally happy with the education that they received? Yeah, the, the education was first class. You know, certainly uh, 
a, a GPS or greater public school uh, style of education uh, across many subjects, obviously some of them very um, practical for naval officers, others uh, more so for you know, a good general education uh, that you know, would cost you a significant amount of money if you were doing it not through the Navy to obtain that level of, of education. And by and large, the Australian Commonwealth Naval Board, the group of admirals, they were happy with the place in its first 10 years, the way it was evolving? Yeah, certainly. And I, I recall, I think the Governor General at the first graduation said that, you know, not all of you are going to be admirals, but uh, the expectation is that you'll go on to be effective naval officers. Uh, and uh, as time progressed, uh, a number of them did uh, shine as they went through the, their naval careers. Obviously the names of uh, John Collins and Harold Farncombe, Harry Showers, uh, who did go on to become admirals and, uh, and Collins became the, the first Australian born uh, Chief of Navy. Uh, but others uh, only made it to the rank of Lieutenant Commander or Commander or Captain, but they were still very effective officers and that showed out during World War II where many of them, although they'd left the Navy, returned to the Navy and were significant players in a number of uh, key areas, such as Eric Felt with the coast watching activity. Uh, and uh, one of the other guys was uh, you know, Australia's best armament fitter for, uh, for new ships. Uh, so they certainly played their role. And I believe we certainly got our value for money out of those, the 23 graduates. So it was an, almost like a national investment with national returns. But David Jones, um, I've heard Peter Jones say the families of the academics came and stayed. What was it like to live there in the 1920s at Jarvis Bay if you were the family member of an academic? I mean, I suppose you did things in Jarvis Bay. You might have done things in the bush. What other things did they do to overcome the remoteness of the place? Well, uh, it was like a, a complete uh, society there. Um, they had uh, cinema, um, they had functions, and the, uh, the wives of both the Navy staff and the um, civilian staff were involved in uh, entertaining, uh, dance partners at uh, regular dances, etc. And um, they really created their own, their own entertainment. The, uh, the college was set up with, uh, with uh, um, a golf course in the 20s, um, a beautiful nine-hole golf course, um, tennis courts, uh, beach activities, and again, the, uh, the quarter deck, the main centre oval, uh, which they played just about every sport. But what about medical care? Because I would imagine that if people had a problem, what were they going to do? Could they be treated at Jarvis Bay, or do they have to come to Nowra, or perhaps go on a sea passage to Sydney? Well, one of, one of the original buildings was a hospital. So um, uh, again, that's a service that had to be provided because of the remoteness of the, uh, of the, uh, the base. So the hospital, which eventually became the senior sailors mess, uh, was built on the top of the hill. And they had even had an isolation ward, um, so as uh, hospitals did in those days, uh, to control the infection. And, uh, so, and, the, and they were very well looked after. They had a matron, uh, a head nurse, who uh, would, had a very good relationship with the boys and probably took over that motherly figure along with the, uh, the wives of the staff. So it was a, it was a family. And, um, and generally, uh, from reading the material uh, from the boys there, they were, they were quite happy. Um, they were doing adventurous things. So as well as having an academic uh, life, they also had a, a very adventurous life. The bay was used. They went across the bay uh, in sailing boats and rowing boats and camped out uh, overnight in places like Honeymoon Bay and uh, Boat Harbour. And uh, they had expeditions up to the old ruined lighthouse. And um, 
it was a, it was a marvelous life, and uh, they even got pocket money, and they had a little canteen. So um, they were uh, they, they talk about their life being totally absorbed uh, by navy activities, and it was. It was a it was. Some of them said that later on they realised it was indoctrination, <laughs> um, but it was a very happy indoctrination. So was a posting either as a civilian academic or as a uniformed person to Jarvis Bay, was it liked or loathed? Did people think, oh, I'm being sent to Jarvis Bay, I really don't want to go? Or did some people say, this is great, that's where I want to be? Was it mixed or was there pretty well one direction of the feeling? My feeling is that it was, it was mixed. Um, I think, um, like a lot of remote postings these days, um, you uh, sort of uh, fear and trepidation when you get posted there, but um, once you realise that the society there and the culture and the social uh, is there, uh, you end up enjoying it and having a real love for the place. And um, Creswell is a place where you, you love it. Now, I speak to trainees today and they sort of want to get out of the place because they want to graduate. They want to get over the hard work and get into their careers. Um, however, uh, when they leave, they love it. <laughs> so it's like, um, you know, it's a, a love-hate sort of thing. Very similar to being on board a ship. You, know, you might hate being at sea, but then you find you've got this strange attachment to the ship, uh, which is a sort of a, an affectionate attachment. And Creswell's got that because of its character. Yeah, I have to say that just even my own experience is that while I was there, I can't say that I liked it of yes. the routine. But the day that I didn't have to be there, I then decided to go back because there were many things about it. And the bay is a particular treasure of the place. Peter Jones, we've spoken about this first class. We just touched on them in passing. Um, they really were special. Were they special because it was a unique meeting of the characteristics of the people of the class? Were they always going to shine? Or was there something about their experience at Jarvis Bay that particularly clicked with them and made them so successful in their later careers? So I've argued in my book that they were the first and the greatest class to graduate um, and I've tried to understand well, why was that. Part of it is the fact of that very beginning where they were drawn from a very diverse group uh, and diverse part of society. Uh, you know for example only a quarter of them came from public schools, uh, from private schools I should say, the rest came from public schools. They, all sorts of different backgrounds. But all the classes were like that, so that's... Not that's a factor. Not, not a factor. Mm. So much of it depends on the individuals in any class. Um, I think they also benefit from the fact that they never had a superior class above them. Um, and so they were able to develop and, and, and bloom and sort of make their own way a bit more. I think that when you looked at the college, it became a more regimented as more classes were then added. And once you actually got the full complement with four classes, it became a bit more hierarchical. And you also have this uh, system at the time, which most colleges have, uh, military colleges have, where you have some power vested in the senior class above a junior class. And, and that's sometimes can be fraught where you are giving power to individuals who haven't had much exposure, generally quite young, and so there can be misuses of, of authority. The pioneer class, they never had that. They were always in, 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 the, in the lead. I think also by happenstance, they were able to contribute in so many different ways. As Greg said, you know, one was in the explosive ordnance. One was, uh, you know, played a major part in development of naval intelligence and things like that. So they were able to uh, make a real positive impact in so many different ways. Were they competitive though? Were they competing against each other? 
Um, I did not see in, him, in all my writing that there was a large degree of competitiveness. But having said that, Eldridge's daughters... Uh, uh, Eldridge being a instructor, uh, yeah. civilian instructor at the college who wrote a history of the place. Exactly right. So Eldridge said to his daughters on the day of graduation for the first class and where Collins and Farncombe uh, featured uh, among the many prizes that were given out at the end by the Governor-General, that, um, that one of those two will break the other's heart. So he, he saw that, you know, they were, you know, leading lights and that, you know, at the end of the day, at some point there would be a competition. In the end, those two weren't competitive and they had a very strong bond. But, uh, but it did sort of show that, um, you know, pay wasn't great. The only way to really get a comfortable sort of income as a naval officer was actually to advance in the service. So it was probably, there was more competition, I would say, than what there is today. Um, but I think the other point was that they really did compare very favourably to the British counterparts. And, and it was, I think, because they were drawn from that wide range of society and it's based on talent. But do you think, and we might put it in these terms, no pressure, but you're the first class and we're gonna to look to you to see whether this experiment is working. Was there some of that? Oh, there was a lot of it. There was a lot of that. And you see all through their career, you look, it, it, it was, you only got to look at the, the newspapers, um, that the newspapers reported their milestones every step of the way. When Harold Funken became the first college graduate to be a commander, it was, and when he became a captain, you know, it was in the newspapers every time when they, uh, as lieutenant commanders, they went to the new cruisers, Canberra and Australia, being built in the late 1920s. There was articles in the press about the college graduates now being at this point in their career and, and fulfilling these important roles. So there was a lot of national interest and scrutiny. And when, as midshipmen, they, uh, some of them were in the Battle of Heliglam Bight, that that was reported in the national press that our college graduates have participated in this battle. So they're college graduates, but they're also Australians. And was there element of which we were saying to ourselves in one sense, we can do this as well as anyone else? Yes, so I think, um, and part of that, you have to understand that at the very beginning, at that opening of the Naval College, at, uh, at the Interim College at Geelong, there was discussion in some of the speeches that there is concern that Australians could not uh, submit to naval discipline and therefore be good naval officers. So there was that very real sense. And at graduation um, at the Naval College, um, at the end of that four years, that the Governor-General said, uh, and Captain Morgan, the captain of the college, reported how that they had uh, shown themselves to be disciplined people. So it was this thing about, you know, could it, the Larrikin Australians actually be naval officers and that was so that was a question mark. I think the phrase that was used at some point was fitted by training and character. Exactly right. And that Australians you know by their uh, temperament didn't necessarily make second rate or or would struggle to be naval officers at all but the real test I suppose Greg Swindon is in wartime and so we had this very first class and they finished their training off they went to sea. Was there a sense in which anyone in the British Navy thought Ooh, they're Australians. Are they trained to our standard? And how also did the Australians fit in when they got to Britain? Yes, well, the, the group, well, the first class uh, left Australia in, uh, in early 1917. And actually, an interesting aside, one of the 
the term members, um, Midjim and Armitage was, was left behind in hospital because he was sick so he missed going across with the, the first group and uh, he then went on a later troop ship, uh, the Ballarat, which uh, interestingly for him was torpedoed in the English Channel on the 25 April 1917 and so he was the first member of the, the class to actually see active service uh, simply by being on board a, a troop ship that was torpedoed. Uh, but then he linked up with the rest of his group. So the first class uh, uh, midshipmen uh, was split across the uh, fleet. Some went to HMAS Australia, the Australian battle cruiser, some to HMS Canada, uh, another uh, Royal Navy cr uh, battle cruiser, and some to uh, HMS Glorious. So they arrived, they were then broken up uh, into three different groups and then put into the gun room uh, you know, where the midshipmen uh, messed on board uh, warships in with a bunch of you know, Royal Navy midshipmen and a couple of sub-lieutenants to keep uh, a close eye on them. And the initially uh, they stood out because they were, they were different, they were Australians, you know, so they were... Spoke differently? They spoke differently, they were often much taller much more physically uh, robust than the average uh, Royal Navy midshipmen. They were tanned as opposed to being quite pasty white, you know, from you know, living in the, uh, the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, so they stood out as different at that time. Um, there were some concerns voiced by the, the British officers that they, they wouldn't fit in and that they, they wouldn't make good naval officers, but they soon proved them wrong in the most. There was a, there was a couple of uh, the midshipmen who didn't do particularly well, uh, and then uh, and that was noted. But on the bulk, they, they did very well. But they mightn't have done well regardless of who they were. I mean, it wasn't said, was it, that they were Australians and therefore they didn't do well. Is In any class, I presume, you'd have a poor performing group and they could have just been that. That not that not then being a function of their nationality. Yeah. That's that's true. But on the whole, they were noted by their their British officers uh, who were their superiors and were looking after them and training them that these these this first group, first class of uh, 1916, and then and then the, the follow-on year there was the class of 1914 who made it to the Grand Fleet whilst the war was still on, stood out as quite you know very well trained, uh, you know very physically robust. Uh, able to do their job and keen to learn. Hmm. Yeah, uh, one, one of the interesting stories which I think um, uh, highlights their training uh, when they got over there is, is the, the fact that they were being bullied initially by their senior, senior midshipmen and sub-lieutenants and they got together and they confronted them even though they're outnumbered and they said we're not going to stand for this and uh, so you better cut it out. And then the senior people in that group, in that cohort, immediately made them senior uh, midshipmen, mm -hmm. so that uh, they won't be, won't, wouldn't be bullied again. So is it true to say that in a small way, perhaps, the Naval College began to change the culture in the gun rooms and in the wardrooms of British vessels? Would that be true to say? It certainly was in terms of the ships that they were on. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and to follow up that point about fitness and so on, Duncan Grant, one of his things that he was keen on was uh, to instruct um, the, the boys in boxing. Um, and, uh, and he saw that as a means in the college. If there was some uh, argument between two boys, put them in the boxing ring and let them 
uh, you know, vent their... Uh, very Georgian approach. Yeah, very Georgian approach. That was written up in the orders uh, yeah. as, a, as a routine procedure. So yeah. no brawling in the accommodation blocks. If yeah. you're going to have it on, yeah. get the boxing gloves in, get in the ring. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, now, whether that was effective or not, I don't know. But what, it, <laughs> but, but what it did mean was when they went to the, uh, the Grand Fleet, that they were quite physically strong. And indeed, in the Fleet Boxing Championship of the first year they were there, 1917, they largely swept the, the pool in terms of, of winning the, all the championships for their weight divisions um, to an astounding level. And so Frank Getting won the, the heavyweight championship of the fleet. Um, and so in one of those contretemps in, in the gun room he was in, there was no argument. Um, <laughs> so, um, but, but the other point on a more serious note is that the commanding officer of the British battleship Argencourt wrote to the Admiralty to say, and this was after the second tranche of midshipmen, the second year, that there is something distinctly superior about these Australian midshipmen and why is it? And he posed that his belief was it was the fact that they had been the product of this open um, recruiting at the very beginning and that is what was the basis for their their, um, their su relatively superior performance as a group and he argued to the Admiralty that the Admiralty should look at that as a model. So David Jones we've heard that it was a great success that Australia could do this but in 1930 and we bring our discussion of this phase of the college's life to a close in 1930 there was talk of closing it why was that? Well, I think that uh, it was a, a sign of the times. The, the cost of running the uh, college was extremely high. Um, so that remoteness meant that uh, the remote locality meant, meant that, um, that all the costs, every single cost was, uh, was, was enormous uh, for the time. Um, and uh, so in, in the 1930s, the, uh, the state of the country in the depression uh, meant that they had to rationalise it. They had um, buildings uh, down at Flinders Naval Depot, which could be in used Victoria. in Victoria, which could be used uh, for college, and they, so they had available space elsewhere. So they said, "Hey, um, you know, here's a here's a place where you can save." And so they uh, they proposed they moved the college to um, uh, Flinders, uh, in, and it moved in 1930. And um, the college then was leased to the public. Um, as a holiday resort. And in fact, it was leased to eight different uh, uh, leasees who, um, who took over certain blocks of the, uh, of the buildings there and turned them into different levels of uh, guest accommodation. So it was closed purely on a cost-saving basis. But what about fears that this place had a particular spirit and ethos that was making a difference? Did they think it was transportable? So it wasn't necessarily related to being at Jarvis Bay. You could pick it up, take it somewhere else, and it would remain. Was that part of the discussion? I don't think so. I think the economics uh, uh, overcame all of that. Um, and uh, I think if you know anyone who's been there and the sense of attachment they had to it would realise that it was desirable to retain it. And it certainly uh, the coming back was a product of realising the potential and the significance and the atmosphere of that place and that it really belonged uh, with the Navy. It was part of our identity. Um, the college remained as, a, as an identity uh, through that period away. 
So um, there was enough character there in, built up in the college to retain its identity and its standards and its traditions and uh, customs as well, um, apart from the location. So, um, and that still remains today. I think the, uh, the identity of the college and the pe way people identify with the college as an entity, separate from the location, is still there. Mm. And I think it was a good proof that, um, you know, the, there was more to the college than just the location. Um, there was an entity in the college itself. Okay, just as we finish now, can I ask each of you just one thing of the period from 1913 to 1930, one thing that you think that you would want the viewers to take away from listening to our discussion that really makes the college special, uh, unique, distinct? Peter Jones. So I think the success that it had in producing officers who were uh, certainly up to the Royal Navy standard and in many ways superior and helped create that important culture where you have officers imbued with an Australian culture leading Australian sailors. Greg Swindon. I believe the college was a success during that period and much of that stems from the fact that it was open to anyone. Uh, it didn't matter what your father did or whether you were, had a, a Royal Navy background in the family. If you were found to be suitable at the, uh, at the selection board, uh, you could join the Navy and become an officer. And certainly in the, uh, in the 1920s, uh, with the boys' training ship Tingaira, they actually identified uh, boy seamen at, on board that ship who had the right stuff to become officers and they were taken out of the training ship and sent to Jarvis Bay to become officers. So anyone who had the right stuff could become an officer and could be well trained. Mm. And David Jones? I think uh, it's a broader lesson for me in that um, I think that uh, culture is made up of a whole lot of things including place. Uh, but it's centred really in the people. And I think that the courage people had uh, to make a difference, uh, Creswell and the early officers, uh, the politicians to a degree to, uh, to establish something that was particularly Australian and uh, was against the run of the culture of our heritage uh, but was better. And I think that's uh, what inspires me is to see that you can make a difference and you can do something better and uh, even though we're on the other side of the world we can, we can, uh, we can do something that's original and good. Well look sadly that's all we have time for in this particular program. I do want to thank uh, Peter Jones, Greg Swindon and uh, David Jones for being with us. It's been a terrific conversation. Lots of ideas and insights have come to us. Thanks as well for your company. We hope that you'll join us next time for the next in our series of Naval History Podcasts. Thanks for joining us and bye for now.